This podcast is brought to you by Apex Motor Park. Want to get out on your bike this weekend? Head over to Apex Motor Park on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and visit one of the best tracks in the country. Private hire bookings now being taken. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Live Motocross podcast. I have roped another co-host in this week. Well, I say that, we dragged him on last week as well. Uh, Roger Warren, thank you for joining us again. This is becoming a regular thing now. I'm, I'm enjoying this, Sophie. Thanks for inviting me again. <laughs> I know. I think when I asked you, the words were, I can't say no. (laughs) Plus I'm cheap, obviously. (laughs) This is true. This is true. Um, So a bit of a legend this week on the podcast. Um, I've wanted to get some stories out of him for a little while now. So we've eventually managed to, um, I say persuade. You kind of told him he got to come on the podcast, really. Um, We've got the legendary Lawrence Spence. Hello, everyone. I don't know if I'm a legend or not, but I used to race motorbikes. <laughs> no, you're a legend in our eyes, mate. You've uh, you've been around motocross for, well, I was trying to work it out. It's got to be, what, 40 plus years now at top level. Um, and you've done, it, this man's done everything. He's raced at the very highest level in Grand Prix, multi-time national champion, um, team manager, mentor to so many riders pretty much he's done everything in motocross so this is going to be an interesting session hopefully yes hopefully (laughs) i know i can't wait um so i think we'll jump straight into it i mean lauren first off how's it been for you with this whole um covid situation have you been managing to get in stuff done at home or um well I would probably be one of the, the lucky ones or whatever you want to call it. I actually work from home. Uh-huh. I, used to, I used to have a unit. So we did we, like an industrial unit, um, that sort of stuff. And whenever I opened the shop door Monday morning, I had to pay rent and stuff like that. So I figured I was working for Monday for other people. So mm-hmm. I thought I'll just buy my own garage and house and stuff like that. And so I've been working from home really on and off the whole time. Mm-hmm. At the start, it was quiet. Because there was a big lockdown here. Yeah. There was. And I was able to get the house tidied up and some old stuff that always always kept stuff for winter. Old <laughs> bikes or building stuff or wheels and stuff like that, which somehow I never get around to it. So we just gathered up and there's bikes laying here for years for guys that never got them. So eventually got first two or three weeks, got those tidied up and sorted out. And then I think with the good weather over here, probably the same as yourselves, and people weren't working. Yeah, there was a lot of people out of work and stuff like that, and they good weather. And then they couldn't go out, they couldn't go to the pubs, or couldn't go to restaurants like that. So they were out riding bikes, yeah, uh, riding riding fields and probably places they shouldn't have been, but <laughs> they were still racking and smashing and then looking bikes fixed. And lucky enough, I could work from home, so I was doing a bit of that as well. Just oh, that's good news then. Oh. Hasn't really affected me. It's just been sort of pretty normal to me now. It affects me whenever I go out, so it does, because I don't know what all this is done about queuing to get into shops and stuff like that. I'll go to Tesco's and you have to stand outside and queue now. I'm like, well, <laughs> not going to borrow all that. I'll just send some of the girls now for it if I need something. Have you been uh, sorting through any of your old your old kit or race stuff or anything like that? Have you have you uncovered anything you've forgotten about? Roger, that was funny too because you know what? Well, I used to be sponsored with everything, so with M. Robert, they seen the picture off there. But all the old kit, uh, I ended up giving it all away 
So the, the different people, you know, people ask me for stuff and um, they do charity stuffs and all that sort of stuff and looking shirts and I ended up giving it all away. And then whenever I did retire and go back home, um, I didn't race for sort of five, six years. So I'd, and then I said, I'm going to back racing again. I had to go and buy a new kit for myself. <laughs> Start me all off again. So I had, now a couple of guys like Philip McCulloch gave me a, a race shirt, one of the old M. Robert or uh, race shirts that I had from years ago. He gave it back to me and stuff. Like that. At least I've something now. So off. <laughs> so have you got any of your old bikes or anything like that as well? The only thing, well, that's <laughs> I've got the the eighty three one that we pushed over the line. Now I, I, I'm nearly sure it is. It was at the time I wasn't riding for Kawasaki then. Um, I was riding for Michael, mm-hmm. and the week we were in Finland. So it was, which was the week before Farley Castle. And I just got word through that Michael had gone bust and there wouldn't be any more help and any more parts. So I was just opened the back door of the van, right? Who wants to buy Michael parts, boys? <laughs> and then Alec came over to me and he says, will you ride a Kawasaki for me next week? And I said, oh, I definitely will. But because Jonathan Wright was injured at the time mm-hmm. and I got his bike. So it did not directly because I was, I was sponsored by M. Robert and stuff like that. So... I had to use my my sponsors still, mm-hmm. and I had to use Vic Allen motorcycles or Vic Lamb up in Louth. Mm-hmm. Um, use his stickers because officially he was sponsoring me, but it was actually Jonathan Wright's bike that I was riding, so I've got it back. And then in '84, '85, my dad wanted a bike. Mm-hmm. He wanted a frame, but he always rode four strokes. So I got one of Joe Bay's frames and running stuff and give it to my dad. And then he put an XT500 engine in it. So I've got a factory frame here with a, no an XT500 engine. Wow. And then I, acqui- I acquired other factory parts with it. Because <laughs> at the end of the year, there was a bit of a weekend movement on. And I thought, mm, I'm having some of that as well as you're having some of that, sir. <laughs> so I have a lot of other stuff as well. I, could pro- I know I can make another 84 factory bike out of it wow <laughs> if i ever get time yeah, it's another it's another one of those winter projects <laughs> <laughs> right so. so um i think we'll go right back to the beginning then um lawrence what was your sort of earliest memory with starting on the bikes how did you get into it well my dad raced motorbikes, mm-hmm. and he he road raced, and he was Irish champion for quite a few years, and was quite good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was always around motorbikes, and it's it's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Was because I remember him telling me must have been only three or four, and he had a wee Honda thing he made up for me, mm-hmm. um, but he would never start it. Yeah, just, you know, whenever I got bigger, he was going to give it to me and stuff like that. <clears throat> and I remember telling me now i can't even remember doing that again but he said ah you went down and put petrol into the carburetor and got it going and took off into the first car it was because he, he used to he used to paint cars <laughs> yeah. so he did he said he took off into the car and that was another load of work i had it for it so it was and then just put it away so i was always around motorbikes yeah and that's where it started off gosh so it was like three years now it was usually i rode bikes or i remember riding the tiger cub 
yeah. for years and years around the garden. You, That's a triumph. Lawrence, you need to explain what a tiger cub is because most people <laughs> yeah. don't know what that is. It might be an animal. <laughs> don't know one of them. No, a triumph tiger cub with a 200cc road bike. So it was, and I just put motocross tires on it and away I went. <laughs> and then schoolboy scrambling didn't start here until the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I was probably 12 or 13 at the time when it all started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember going to my first race, and it was an, an RD125 Yamaha road bike mm-hmm. that I took to my first race and just put motocross tires on it. <laughs> I remember trailing it. It was an underslung exhaust, big exhaust, standard exhaust on it, and it grounded out everywhere. <laughs> and then Ro- Roger McGee was at that race too. He was one of the start- founding members of the whole lot, his dad. And, so. and he was at that race, and he had a TM125. Mm-hmm. And he let me ride it in the last race of the day, and I had, oh, flip me, this miles better than the thing I have. <laughs> so, uh, so eventually got a proper motocrosser in the end. <laughs> so that's how it started off all through this, the years of into schoolboy stuff, mm-hmm. racing. Uh, and what about, so how did you end up progressing sort of into your, your adult career and into the, the Irish Championships? Well, I, I just carried on. Um, yeah. Because I remember going to school, because mm-hmm. we usually would call the transfer test, or when you go from primary school to secondary school. Mm-hmm. I remember all through my life, that's all I ever wanted to do. You know, people are saying, What do you want to do? And I said, I'm going to race motorbikes. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to school and doing all the subjects. And then you're in school for two years, you know, secondary school for two years. And then you have to start picking subjects mm-hmm. to really focus on and study on. And I said, Right, I'm going to pick French. So I am. Um, because if I'm doing Grand Prix, I'm going to need to speak to these people. <laughs> and I remember picking metalwork. I could do metalwork anyway, because I've been working on bikes from I was no height. Mm-hmm. I used to teach. I used to teach a metalwork teacher how to weld. <laughs> so I did. Um, and then I went to the PE teacher, and I said, um, "I want to do. I want to be a PE teacher whenever I go older. Mm-hmm. How do I become a PE teacher?" And he says, "Well." You know, all all I all I was going down the line off was PE extra classes of PE. That's going to be good for my fitness. <laughs> so it is. Whenever I go racing, I'm going to be a PE teacher. I went down to him and he says, "How do you become a PE teacher?" He says, "Well, there is no classes for PE teacher." He says, "I'm actually a geography teacher, but I do PE. I'm training you. I'm now a PE teacher." He says, "There's nothing to do." Well, I want to be a PE teacher. Can you get something sorted out for? so that I can have a qualification <laughs> whenever I leave school here to be a PE teacher. And that was that, that was the start of PE curriculum over here in, in Northern Ireland. So they got that underway, but I thought I was going to be playing football every day and training and all that sort of stuff, but I didn't realize I had to learn how to referee a football match and how to referee a hockey match and <laughs> all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Helped me all right in the training, because <laughs> so I got a few extra... <laughs> classes of training but I had to do a lot of paperwork as well and then uh, come 16 I left school and at the time we had a motorbike shop and a petrol station in Shaw's Bridge mm-hmm. and I worked in it now and, and I used to you know right I'm going to do the gas deliver the gas so mm-hmm. it was around the around the estate so like that and then again it was just for training mm-hmm. you know you used, used to have to go up tar blocks and stuff like that they're not big tar blocks but I used to carry two cylinders up at a time and carry them back down again. Just right. That's me doing a bit more just <laughs> to keep me fit. 
because I was always going racing. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started off. And then getting the done the Irish Championship. Mm-hmm. Whenever I was, I remember going, other story here. I remember at the time of Winston Norwood and David Crocker, which is Gordon's dad. Yeah. We're being the Irish champions. Now, I was talking about the same as the Maxis MX1 in England. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the equivalent over here in Ireland. And they would have been the Irish champions. And my birthday wasn't until the 18th of January. And I can remember I had a, a race down Morningtown, down in Dundalk, and this near the beach, the Sandy. Mm-hmm. Track. And I was still only 15 at the time. And here you couldn't ride adults until you were 16. And I remember going to the week before my birthday, so it was. Mm-hmm. And right, I'm going down to race and have a go at these boys, going to beat them so well. And I got there, and one of the officials came over to my dad and he says, Don't let Lawrence race today because there's going to be a protest and he's going to lose his. He's not going to get a license for a year. <laughs> so he wasn't. And I said, well, that's all right. I'll get you next week then. So I uh, went into the adults that year and won the Irish Championship the first year. First it, so it, Yeah, 16. Wow. What What were you riding? Uh, at that time, again, uh, I started off on a Kawasaki 420, I think it was. Oh, yeah. Twin shock thing. Yeah, a unit um, no, pretty unitary. Oh, twin shock, yeah, twin shock, twin shock still yeah, yeah. then. So it was. Um, I remember riding one of those, but I couldn't keep. I remember putting uh, girling gas shocks on it to get a bit more travel on it to make it a bit handle a bit better, but we couldn't keep gearboxes on it. Third gear, second gear, third what gear. What is it with you and gearboxes? Last the day. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I remember Vic Allen coming over here one year, so he was, and raced with him. He says, and it was only 16 at that time as well. So he says, that boy's going to bend a crowbar and a bug so he could. That <laughs> <laughs> was fairly hard on him. And I started off, but we couldn't keep gearboxes in them. And then I rode CCM with my dad for a wee bit, one of his bikes, just whatever was lying about. And I eventually rode EMCs. That I'd, when yeah. they were there, eat off motocross and Bolt, Bolton Bolton. Yeah, I remember that. I carried on with EM, yeah, carried on with them and then rode EMXs and that's what I eventually went to the Grand Prix with. I was 18, the EMX, Farley Castle. It was the first Grand Prix I rode. So, so how old were you then? I remember. GP. Whenever I could have been then, oh, I think you could only get Grand Prix at 18 then before you get your international license. It was there 17 or 18. Wow. So, uh, was that a big eye-opener when you went to the GP? Now, even before that, um, I know I've had some fallouts with the Federation all over the years, something like that. Um, but I went to Motocross the Nations when I was young, young, underage. Somehow they gave, they gave me a license to go there. And it was in Buren in Germany. And at that, those times, you just drove everywhere. And I can remember going down the German motorway, the Autobahn, and Robert Wilkinson was part of the team then, um, driving his van. And me, I was only 16 or 17 then, driving down the motorway in an old Mercedes van that when you put the throttle down, it went left. And you took the throttle off, it went right on its own. <laughs> <laughs> so that was motocross the nation stuff. And then the Grand Prix as well. I remember doing mm-hmm. the... the Farley Castle, and I think at that time you'd be in the top 10 to score points. And I think I, I scored points in it. 
I know I did score points and and um what the week after was Namur in Belgium and we're trying to get an entry at the end because it was at that time the clubs run it and the federations run the, the Grand Prix and mm-hmm. I, I wasn't getting into the Belgium Grand Prix, they weren't letting me ride in the Belgium Grand Prix. And we went to spoke to Ro- Roger de Costa and then mm-hmm. he went and spoke to the Belgian Federation. The next thing we were loaded up and away we went. And our travels around Belgium Grand Prix and the Luxembourg Grand Prix, which is sort of the last ones of the year then. So they were. Mm-hmm. Where's that? Es- Esselbrook. Edelbrook, yes. Namur, Namur and Edelbrook. Now, I can't remember the results. Stuff like that, you know, I would think it's just, that's done and dusted. And um, <clears throat> whatever happened, happened. If you made a mistake, you learn from it and try and improve it. But I would always be looking forward instead of, Oh, I remember this happened that I'm not why you know I have to be prompted and stuff that reminds me of stuff that did happen. <laughs> so did you have anybody sort of guiding you or helping you then or were you just really learning on the hoof? Um all through most of my career it'd be myself. I remember when we went to school boys, like at that time my dad was still racing. So he was he was still he'd give up road racing, he went to circuit racing then. Uh, and then he went to motocross because he was near killed. So he was at it. And he was still racing away most weekends. Every weekend when I was in the schoolboy. So it was my mum used to take me. And I had to do all my own work. I remember one time I got a puncture, sweat in the back wheel and take the back wheel out and put a patch on it, fix it up and put it back on again. Fucking, how do you do that? So if I didn't do it, I wouldn't be racing, boys. So I wouldn't <laughs> have to do it. <laughs> but my dad's away racing, so he is somewhere else. <laughs> And but it's, all through it's, that sort of stuff. It's a big undertaking though, isn't it? Because I mean, even the travelling was was more difficult then. The driving and getting across borders and just uh, and all the paperwork, the carnets and all that sort of thing that you had to have to travel around Europe and do the GPs. And I mean, that that's a lot to learn if you're on your own. Oh yes, yes, it is. But it teaches you an awful lot of life lessons. So it does, you know, how, how to treat people and talk to people if you want things done. So it does, like, going around Europe wasn't that bad. You get used to it. You just have to stand up and wait your turn and get your paper stamped. And rarely they would look at you. So they would, you're wrong. But I remember one time we went to the Czech Republic for a Grand Prix. And they're in there, like, and you don't take any messing with them. Like, normally you go into Belgium or stuff. There's my paperwork. Just sign it there, boy, and I'll be away dead on. I remember going to check one and the, the, they check your carnet that everything's on the carnet is there and stuff like that. And uh, yes, no bar, no sir problems. One, three bags full, sir, and we'll be away. And I got out of it, no problem. But I remember Anstey, Mervyn Anstey, kind of get through it. And he said, Don't you look at that, do that. And the wee customs man, just you stand over there. <laughs> you can just wait till I want to see you, so you can. <laughs> and he was there for nearly a day. <laughs> he just got the Grand Prix in time, so he did. So it learned you. It was different. So it was just different, and it's the way it, it's the way life was then. So you just get on with it. Yeah, it's uh, definitely uh, a learning curve just uh, doing the whole thing. But so the the eighties now. Let's let's talk about that. I mean, there's been a lot about that um, recently, um, following uh, Rob Andrews' book that he wrote recently about his life in Grand Prix in the eighties. So. Um, Basically, tell us what, what was life like on the road those days? Because you mentioned that when you are at school, you chose to learn French. Now, that was probably a real good move because in those days, I'm guessing 
a large part of your income came from doing French internationals and things like that? Oh, yes. Yes. That's where you could make your living um, doing the French internationals. You had one in Belgium and Holland and stuff like that in Italy. But I was probably, well, I would have sort of classed myself a wee bit more like Australian guys. Like it was a crowd of us from Australia, New Zealand, um, one or two from South Africa that we would travel around together. Quite often you were doing the same internationals. Some of them just spent their time internationals racing. Some of us did Grand Prix and then done the internationals to tie us over to the next Grand Prix. Um, because for me to get home, like if you lived in Belgium, you could do a French international and be home that night. But for me to get home, it was two days driving. And it was two days driving back again to get back to France. So I would have been living in campsites and washing your clothes in the river and stuff like that and getting ready for the next race. And you got mm-hmm. a wee group of travelers that were together that you sort of met up with. You know, you go to the race this week, where are you next week? Oh, and Limoges, right? I'm there too. Sure, we'll go to such a campsite. And you get the new campsites around France that was near to where you were going. That accepted you, sort of welcomed you in because a lot of them didn't want motorbikes and you're sitting there with a power washer, washing your motorbike and taking it apart and oil around the place, doing your air filters and washing your muddy gear and all their shower units and stuff. But at that time, there, there were a lot of races in France, weren't there? Every, every town, every club had their race and you could literally do probably 10 or 20 internationals out there, couldn't you? And if you could do it in between GPs for one boat crossing, um, happy days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we used to stay there just, and you, you, you could make a living. It was just coming at the end of the 80s. It was just coming to the end of all that. So it was. But whenever I was there, you could have made a reasonable living out of it already. You were getting start money. So you are, and then you get reasonable good prize money. Can you explain so you explain to people how that worked with sort of start money and guarantee and prize money and that sort of thing? Well, at the time, I would have Dave, a guy called Dave Smith as our manager, who a lot of us, the English people, had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he would get in contact with the organizers. He was fairly switched on with that. And now, now I know how to do it. You could do it myself, but it saved me the hassle. And he, he was Mr. 10%, so he took 10% off your off your uh, start money. Now, your start money was just like a travel expenses. You could be guaranteed £200 if you turned up. So as long as you turned up, you would get your £200, and you could win 500 I remember winning Beaucaire one year, and I come away with about £3,000 out of it. So, it did. so you could make do all right out of it. So you could, it's the only way you could. You could make yourself at that at that stage. It would be a job for you, so you had to make a living to go to the next race. You were also getting um, getting some money if you qualified for a GP at that time, now, weren't you? Yes, you did. Yes, you had to qualify, and you were getting five hundred Swiss francs when you qualified, and then you were getting prize money as well if you were finishing the top ten. You were, so you were getting enough again to get you by. You know, it sounds big money, all right, but you had to pay your own expenses to get to the next race. I was going to say, yeah, it wasn't. Terrible. Yeah, it sounds good earning that sort of money, but if you didn't qualify, you probably didn't have enough money to get home. No, no, then you had to go and look for lorries that were sitting inside of the road or somebody's doing roadworks to get some diesel to get you to the next place. Ah, what, <laughs> the funny colour stuff? Uh, why, do they do any other yeah, stuff? Exactly, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
I, I remember when, because yeah. I used to do sidecars in that time, and um, one of the guys I used to rope with, um, every building site was raided about a week before we go away. Um, oh, flip, that's another one. I, have. I remember coming up three France one time, and I thought, blowing diesel here, and it was middle of the night, and it was nowhere open, and oh, there's a big, big steamroller there. I'll have some of that. So I pulled in and opened the top of the tank. You know, I thought it was the front of it. Big tank in the front. I love some of this. Oh, it's full. Great. Sucked it out. Sucked about 30 gallon out of it. Two miles up the road, thing stopped. I'd sucked out 30 gallon of water. <laughs> Go ahead. Poetic <laughs> justice, that is. That is, yes. <laughs> he not miss that, sweetheart. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so, moving on from that, how did you end up... Um, in the MX and Nations and sort of how many years did you roll on doing those? Can't remember so far. <laughs> <laughs> years and years I've done them with loads of people. So I had all different teams, like right from Robert Wilkinson. Yeah. Um, in the 70s and 80s. Which was your most memorable? Right. How about that? Of oh, far as a cast, uh, Of a motocross the Nations? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I can remember some of the things that happened in them. I can remember the one at Farley Castle one year. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what year it was. It was probably one of the younger ones, earlier ones. And I got a half decent start. And you know the, the, the steps up in Farley? Yeah, yeah. In the, uh... the step ups, you, you, you jump up, you can jump up. And I, I was... Well, the castle walls, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah I could. I could do those and Farley had no trouble at all. I remember coming around in the first lap and somebody on a Suzuki, a decent rider, he could sent in or something, maybe it was. And I, I was lining myself up to jump and he didn't jump it. So he did and I landed right on top of him. So, that, <laughs> so that's that race wreck, so it was. <laughs> but as far as where I finished, oh, I, I, that sort of stuff I couldn't remember. You need to sort of look it up and go through all the old archives and mm-hmm. Find out. And I, I remember racing every year in Farley or in the motocross the nations while I was fit to race. Mm-hmm. I would have raced with the team. So I ah. remember one year that the, the English, because I was at the time I was riding for Kawasaki, um, they wanted me to get an ACE license, but then the MCI wouldn't release me. And then uh, the ACU wanted me to ride in the motocross team, but the MCI wouldn't release me for it. So, but sure. It all worked out in the end. <laughs> so those days, I mean, obviously that's that's entirely different. But um, you you came through those as a rider. When when did you get to the point where you you retired? When did that happen? That happened in it must have been eighty eighty eight because I was still riding in eighty seven. Because um, I can remember I was on the podium in Farley Castle in 87. It got the, it got the 80, it probably got a few years before 84. I can remember riding 84 in the factory bike, 85 and 86. And I can remember going to France Grand Prix, French Grand Prix, and I can't remember where it was now, but you can run a, it was a right-hander and down a bit of a dip and then jumped out over the start gate and down the start lane, start straight and I can I was and there was 
I think Andy Nickel or something got there. And I, for some reason, I was going quite quick that weekend. That could <laughs> be an 87, actually. I was going quite quick that week. So it was, and I was getting around and it was easy. It's just one of those weeks where everything was coming together for me. And I was about fifth or sixth quickest. And I was, Andy Nickel, he was, was following me. I said, right, come and follow us around. I'll get you around here. Let's show you where, where, where I'm going anyway. We got him in. And then on the Sunday morning, <clears throat> there was another time practice. But you could do practice starts. And it was sort of near the end of this practice session. And I come out over the, through the bomb hole, out over the finish line. And I met Heinz Kindergartner's brother, Klaus Kindergartner, coming the other way. He, he had done a start and was coming back down the start straight as I was coming out over this jump and hit him head on. No. So I did. And uh, I thought I'd broken my arm. Taken away to hospital. So I thought I'd broken my arm. Actually hand in the end. But I thought, you know, it was getting the stage of my career where I'm riding safe. So I am. I'm still quick enough. Mm-hmm. So I am to be up there with them. And I'm still getting hurt. And I thought, I don't really need this anymore. And then... I just went on the rest of that year and I rode Farley Castle. I'm going to have a, but at that stage, it took something to get me annoyed. It took something to get me motivated mm-hmm. to go quick. So it did to really put that last 10 tenths in. And I said, right, I'm going to have a go at this today. So um, and I was, I was third in the podium that day. And then after that, I thought, and then Alec wanted me to be look after the team, the youth team and stuff like that. And I thought, I like, mm, I don't know. I'll think about it and see. And I thought about it over the weekend. And I thought, I'm getting to the stage, what was it, 20, 29, something like that. I'm getting to the stage now in my life where I need to settle down. I need to buy a house. <laughs> so I do. And I thought, I can't see myself living here in Slough or London. This sort of a rat race is not really where I want to be at the minute. And living out of a suitcase mm-hmm. for the last... 15, 20 years, I've had enough of that too. It's maybe time I just turned around and went back home and see what there is there for me offer me. Well, just just yeah. jumping ahead then, you, you've actually um, moved us into uh, down the agenda now. You mentioned Alec Wright. Um, again, halfway back to Rob Andrews and his book, he um, did quite an extensive section in the book about when he was on Team Green and riding for Alec Wright. What, what were your experiences of uh, Team Green and um, for the iconic man team manager then Alec Wright. How, how did it go for you? Um Alec Wright was like a dad to me. So he was because I had nowhere to live. I, I, I live with Alec and Violet. Right. Violet be the wife, Alec's wife is still going today, sorry. And Colin right now. So, and I, I live with him. I, I rented a room off him. So I get on well with him. Very well with him. Now he was fair. So he was, and if he had a problem with you, he would have told you. <laughs> and if you're big enough to take it, yes, you know, we had our arguments here and there and stuff like that. And, but I got on very well with him, so I had no problem at all. And he was a for me, he was a good manager. So he was because he was always thinking of ways to improve things and to make things better. And you know, bringing sponsors in, you know, maybe a wee bit ahead of his time. Of what he was trying to do, he was. Um, but and if you rode like an old doll, he would tell you, you rode like an old doll. <laughs> a lot of people couldn't take it, so he could. But 
you know yourself when you're not riding well, you're not getting results. You're not really, you don't deserve to be in the team. So you don't, there's better. There's other ones out there that will get in the team. So I don't know, but I, I was probably luckier too that I was developing bikes as well and testing bikes while I was still racing. That, I remember going to over, yeah, that leads on again. Kawasaki. Yeah, what was the Kawasaki like then? Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the factory Hondas were, were a step above, but um, how did the Kawasaki's compare? You, you say you were developing it. Well, I was developing the production bikes, you know, in 89, 88, 89, when that, we were still riding the perimeter frame ones. I was over in Japan developing the, or developing the perimeter frame ones. We were still riding the traditional stuff. I was right. I was developing, like I was on that two years before I'd ever come into production, trying it. Um, the factory bikes, I think the bother we had with the factory bikes, well, I had anyway, was we only had two. So they were always kept for the Grand Prix. Now, the production bikes were looked similar, but they weren't the same. So I was always practicing on their production bike. And then I went to the Grand Prix and I had to ride the, I was riding the factory bike. And it just wasn't the same. You had to get used to it again. Everything was much tighter and stiffer and it was just different because i can remember going to i used to go to chipping them quite a lot mm-hmm. and i remember riding around there chipping over in norfolk sort of direction stuart dunn's place at the time it was um and i was riding the old production thing and i used to love rent i could have rode the wheels off it and i can remember going out with uh mark banks and stuff like that and riding around the inside of them around the outside anywhere i wanted to go but Come the weekend, I was then struggling a bit more. I would have lost a wee bit of pace on the factory stuff just because I didn't have the confidence in it. That was all. Now, the odd time we did get out practicing on them, which helped, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, whenever I'm trying to help Stuart or something like that, you need to be practicing on the bike you're going to be racing on. Mm-hmm because you're going to have confidence in that bike and you know what's going to do. So you will. At the same, you know, when we're out testing or something like that, or right at the race and stuff, you know, you can say, oh, I need, a, I need a, the back shock hardened up three clicks or something like that. Said, you're, you're going to have to go out there in the first lap of this race, see, our, and you're going to have to learn that bike, mm-hmm. see what it's going to do. Whereas you know what it's going to do now. If you had something, you know, at leather, take it in or you're going to have to adjust your weight for it, your body or something like that. And you know, you can go to the start line and you can go into that corner a hundred percent. Whereas if you start adjusting something, it plays in your head a wee bit. Oh, I wonder what that's going to do. And it's going to take you a lap to get used to it. So are you saying having a factory bike hindered you? It probably did slightly. Yes. Yes. I probably could have rode the production bike. Now, there wasn't a big lot of difference in them. So there wasn't. It just handled slightly different. It was just different wee things that, with it. That it took me, it took me probably a fair while to get confidence in it, to know how it's going to turn. You know, when you put it in the corner. In those days, we would have rode all different tracks. Dutch tracks, you had to get used to just practicing sand. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the tracks would have been some of the tracks would be like road racing. They like went to Italy and stuff like that. There was no berms or anything like that. They were rock hard. Um, turns were 
you needed to have a lot of confidence in the bike to be able to steer it around the corner. Hmm. So you did. Now, now it's a wee bit different because they put berms and stuff like that, and it's a bit on the on the road of the tracks. Whereas whenever we raced them, it's just a, that's a track you get on with, boys. Because I've seen some of the photographs up this week of Sittendorf. Mm-hmm. There with Sorbigan down them and the rocks and the stones. Like whenever we, we were finished there at the Grand Prix, the whole front of us have been black and blue with stones, no matter how much body armor you wore. <laughs> so, you would, so you were riding in just different tracks. So you needed a bike that you had a lot of confidence in to be able to steer it. Mm-hmm. So you had. <laughs> So speaking of bikes, let's talk about um, me and Roger had a little bit of a discussion about the iconic push over the line in 83. How was that? How frustrating was it? Because the video that we saw. Yeah, I, I just said to Sophie before we started, it's 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 uh, you're probably better known to a lot of people for pushing your bike than you were for riding it. <laughs> yes, for all the years of riding it. Yes, I was because, well... That was my first time on them, on the Kawasaki's, and they were at that time they were known to give gearbox trouble anyway. They mm-hmm. were all giving gearbox because we used to put gearboxes in them every week, <laughs> just to get just to get us by the weekend. So I did, but that in that race because I was fairly well up to start with, in that race, mm-hmm. and it was after sort of four or five laps that the gear started to go. I remember I couldn't get. I think it was third gear. So I was having to change from second into fourth <laughs> and keep going. Yeah. And then it was probably the last three or four laps of that race that it, I think it was stuck in second gear. It just wouldn't change out of second gear. And I remember revving the head off it to try and keep it going, like to try and keep reasonable place and just come into the last corner and it locked up. And well, there's a finish line there, boys. I'm going to have it. So I have. And I lost a few places. And I don't know, some, some of the videos you can see on it, where you can see the flag man coming towards me. Yeah. So you can. And then you'll see the uh, the lap scorer shouting at him, come back here, come back here. Because I even think there was a protest that day. I think one of the riders protested that the flag man came towards me. No way. Because we did so that yeah. on the, we said to Roger that he was kind of moving a bit further away from you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Before I wanted to, other people are telling me that before that he had moved towards me and it was the the lap scoring people <laughs> actually told him to come back to the finish line you could see <laughs> he was trying to help yeah me. you could see people sort of coming towards you but um luckily none of them helped because that that I, would have excluded you straight away wouldn't it yes yes i think it was some of the people that are shouting they don't touch him don't touch him you know sort of stuff and that i can I remember i just remember trying to get the over the line because it was a roasting hot day that day too and mm. that's from, what we're riding 40 odd minutes or 45 minutes plus two laps. So the back wheel was locked solid then, was it? Yeah, back wheel was locked solid. It actually seized the back wheel locked solid coming in. And you couldn't, there was no point in pulling the clutch in because it was a gearbox that seized locked solid on. So it. you were dragging the bike. You couldn't, it wasn't even pushing it then, it was dragging it. Yeah, yeah. Trying to, I think I had my arm on below the back mudguard of the back wheel or something, trying to lift it a bit to make it a bit easier to, to push forward so hard. And lucky enough, out of that, that's what got me the factory ride in '84 with Kawasaki. Came out of that. Wow! 
So moving on a little bit, um, jumping back to the MX Nations, you've ended up being manager for a couple of years. Is that right? I was for four or five years. Well, whenever I finished racing, mm-hmm. I come back home here and settle down a bit. Well, <laughs> didn't do as much riding and stuff like that. Yeah. I've done a little bit for a few years and thought, oh, I'm going to deal with me being racing the whole time or involved motorbikes. You, you never got the chance to do the things that the other people did, mm-hmm. you know, went out and partied and run around the place and stuff like that. So I did that for a few years. Um, and then I got back into the bikes again. I can't, you can't get away from motorbikes. Yeah. They're a bit like a, they're a bit like a drug. So they are, mm-hmm. like you just can't get away from no matter how you try. And I got back in again, and at the time, the Federation was in rocky, sticky ground, and this, the motocross end split from the Federation and started up their own, which is the MRA. Mm-hmm. So I got involved in it. You were chairman, that's right. I was chairman for, yes, a few years, and um, I still am involved in it. So I'm with technical and stuff like that. How do you cope but, with the politics of that sort of thing? Ah, different. So it is. It's different. You've you've people pulling in different ways, and people clubs looking after themselves, and not for the you know, I was a couple of times I said, look, we want to do things here for the good of the sport, not for the good of you or for the good of your club. Look long term, long term, on what is for the good of the sport for everybody. But in the end, I just I was fighting against a brick wall I thought right it's time somebody else took on this role so it was <laughs> and moved to the side of it and let them carry on so I did but I'm still like uh, I would still run a lot of races here I'm still involved mm-hmm. in running races over here we, we started up with what's called an Evo club mm-hmm. as part of the, the knock motorcycle club which I'm involved in and that's for if you've got a motorbike, bring it along and we'll get you a race. And they're only like old fashioned wee five lap we would have called grass track races here. Mm-hmm. But they use motocross bikes for well, them. So what what's your take on the on the upsurge on, on vet motocross now? Because it seems to be just gaining momentum and people are getting into it and spending a lot of money on vet bikes now. And what what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I don't know where it's going to go, Roger. A lot of the older people I see that they get as much enjoyment out of working on them and spending money on them and trying to get them as near a factory bike as they can. And they've probably got the money to do that now. So they have. And they can still ride to an extent. Now, I think that'll run out because those vets like myself and stuff like that, I'd be 60 next year. I'm not going to keep going riding motorbikes. I'll not be fit enough to ride motorbikes. So some of them are now putting younger riders on them mm-hmm. and they're getting as much enjoyment out of just looking after it. And that's my rider. And I want to see it at the front and I want it looking the best bike. And from that end, I don't know where it's going to go in another 10 years. Cause those people there will not be fit to look after them <laughs> not, or maybe not the interest. And, There'll be electric bikes and all that sort of stuff coming on. So there'll be big changes in the next 10 years. But at the minute, there's just a lot of, like, like myself, just out enjoying myself. Now, there's a group of us go. We, we do the, I do the Veterans Irish Championship. 
and there's four of us going at whenever they're on, whatever, just sort of while we concentrate on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do it for a laugh. There's four of us do it, and between the four of us, like we just regroup of us, and we go there the night before and have something to eat and or beer or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and then whoever's last in the, the race, in our race, has to buy dinner on the way home. <laughs> so, so it gives you a bit of incentive not to be last. I've never bought dinner yet, but the guy that is always last, he always sneaks out and hasn't bought dinner either for years. So he hasn't. <laughs> his, his bill's running out big now, so it is. <laughs> but for me, that's where I get my enjoyment out. If I wasn't doing that, I'd be working. Mm-hmm. So I thought, or else I'd be going to the shops for her or something like that. And that's, I mean, as well work. <laughs> so it, nothing bores me more than going to the shop. The vet stuff, I mean, you, you've done the vet donations at Farley Castle now. I mean, you you know, that that's, that's a huge, huge meeting now. Um, but the the joy for people like themselves, and I'm sure for most of the fans, is not just seeing the bikes, but, I mean, that is a large part of it, but it's being able to mix with people like yourselves who, back in the day, we were looking over the fence and cheering on, and now we can come up and have a beer with you and have a chat. And that that's a whole different scene now, isn't it? It's, it's a fun thing. I know people take it serious with the race. Of course they do, but it's just a, a big, fun weekend now, and it's it's getting more and more popular. It is, and Dave's been on to me for quite a few years to come to it, and I haven't, well, I haven't been to it officially, so I haven't. I do go and ride, but my sort of, why I don't want to make it officially is that, you know, I know Dave will put a big thing out of Lawrence Benz coming and this, you know, mm-hmm. and then I have to go and ride, whereas I've got to the stage now where... If it's a nice day and I feel right, yes, I'll go and ride and I'll go and race. Mm-hmm. But if it's pissing rain and there's muck and gutters everywhere, I thought, I couldn't have bothered with that today. <laughs> so I couldn't, all the work you have to do afterwards. Now, I still enjoy going over um, and talking to all the people and looking at the old bikes. And oh, I remember that old thing there at Suzuki, that's near like a factory one there. And the, the Husqvarna's, the, the work the Germans do to those ones, like they're better than the factory ones. So yeah, like, yeah. Still, still enjoy all that and talking to Mike Brown and all that sort of stuff. But I, I don't want to make it that serious. Yeah. So don't that, you know, I don't want to disappoint people that, oh, I'm going to wear to see, you know, such a race this weekend. He's now couldn't even buy riding. <laughs> so, so. So the, the... But no, that, that, that is getting big. And I think it's just the people that are involved in it or go for a weekend's fun. And they have the beer tent, and it is a good weekend when the sun's shining. It's a brilliant weekend. So it is. Well, as I say, it's it's great for us to actually sort of catch up with you now. But I I understand where you're coming from because um, you know because you were at the top level. Um, unfortunately, um, when you turn out on a bike now, you've still got it in you that you want to do well, and people expect you to do well. It's not like ordinary Joe that doesn't really matter where he finishes. Um, you're under pressure to to be up there and, you know, and there's probably pressure on yourself and to do well and rather than just plonk around at the back. And that, that's the downside of um, being where you were, I think. Obviously, everybody wants to yeah. just ride around and if you have a good race, great. If you don't, don't. But, um, you know, that I'm, I'm sure, to be honest, that, that's why I know Dave thought people like that don't do it. It's because 
everyone would be, it'd be like a target on your back. You know, if somebody comes up behind Dave Thorpe or someone comes up behind you, um, they're going to want to beat you. And, uh, they're gonna be, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and it's, they don't get the thing that, you know, you're just riding around having fun the same as them, but, um, it gets a little bit more serious then. Yeah, it does. And that's why I've been over a few times with the, the team. You know, Gordon, one time with Gordon and stuff together, we had a team together, me and Stephen Russell and Dave Watson. And yeah, Gordon. I remember. Yeah. And it was it was good enough, all right. You know, it was good days, fun and stuff like that. But the weather was good. And it all came together. And I've been over once with Tim Matthews and his team from the south, I'm a team hammer or something like that it was. And it was pissing rain and you could hardly get up the hills and stuff like that. And I was riding an old CCM or, you know, one of the... Armstrong's, whatever it was at the time, and no tires on it and stuff like that. And but dry, enjoyed it all right. But I think, what am I doing here, trying to push this up this hill here for? <laughs> Just a quick, quick on on CCM. Um, a couple of years ago, they had uh, John Banks down there as a guest. Um, they lined yeah. him up with one of his old CCMs, and he was sat there ready to do his parade lap. And Elliot was riding as well. His uh, obviously his nephew, and he was riding two stroke. Yeah. And John called Elliot over, and in his typical accent he said here boy come over here try and pull that clutch in <laughs> Elliot had to have basically two hands to try and pull the clutch in on that ccm that's right and i think it was wet that year it was or yeah it? it was yeah yeah because i remember i was with john that time so it was and he still talks about it now because we had to do the parade lap and i was with john at the time and i got off in front of him and i got you know the steps again so it was, and some of them were riding up the steps, and I stopped at the steps. I said, "John, here, follow me. We'll go down the bottom of it. You know, don't go near that." So we'll just about managed getting around because they made a wee path. They didn't have to go up the steps. We joined the track again down the bottom, and we rode down it. So it did, and we wanted to buy the last ones back. I says, "Thank goodness, Lord, I'd never get up them. So wouldn't it not?" <laughs> I remember John had wellies on as well, didn't he, doing his parade? Ah. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't even a dress no, sport. That's what he was wearing a pair of wellies. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'll digress yeah. there. Sorry. Anyway. First of all, Lawrence, um, just I, one for me, a, a take on here. You've ridden two-stroke here. Obviously, it's probably an impossible question, but how does uh, two-strokes and four-strokes, the modern four-strokes, compare? Um, are they easy? Are four the strokes two, easier to ride than the old five hundred two strokes? Yes, yes, that's another story you can give here. Because whenever I first got the factory ride with Kawasaki, mm-hmm. we did on the five hundreds. Um, the Japanese come over to come over to us first because it, it was me and Joe Bay on the team in eighty four, and they come over to us first, so it over to me first, and then they were going to Belgium the week after with Joe Bay. Uh, and I went out testing the, the first of the factory Kawasaki's 500s then. And I had the production bike, which I liked. And it was, we were, the track we were at was um, real hard white chalk. So there was very little grip on it. And I went out, first of all, and right, I'm happy with that. And then went out in the factory bike. And I thought, hmm, it's not as good as a production bike. So it's not steering as good. And the power's different on it it's not as quick as a production bike and they brought over five engines five 500 Kawasaki factory engines over and they kept putting engines and every engine they put in was quicker <laughs> and I kept saying no we're going the wrong way here that's not you know that's not where we want to be going I said 
and they ended up putting one with 70 horsepower on it. 70? Um, Jeez. Yeah, for me to try. And when I read that, I says, that, you cannot ride that. He said, you have to be in a straight line with your nose over the front wheel and you might get it opened up. You can't, you need to be opening it up around the corners. It's nice, smooth power. And it was nearly getting sacked. You know, I, I remember the Japanese man telling to Alec, Alec told me after, he says, at that day you were sacked. So you were, <laughs> <laughs> you were, because they had built a special bike and special engine and stuff. And you're saying it's a little rubbish. They were, and they went to Dubai and he said the same. So he did. Yeah, but so if I, they made you ride that, you probably would have resigned, wouldn't you? I would have went somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. But at that time, um, Dubai had Johan Leuten looking after his engines and stuff like that, his bikes. And we were going towards what four-stroke power is now. We were putting lead weights in the cranks and stuff like that to try and make it smoother and make it more torque than actual brake horsepower. And that's eventually where we went to. So at that time, we were going, but they were just getting too quick, which I think where they are now as well with the 450s and stuff, they're just too quick. Mm. The bikes are, but the bikes are 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 so smooth and easy to ride now, and they get so much grip that they just go forward very quick. The day like for for me now, a four fifty. Uh, uh, I just got myself a new four fifty Kawasaki there, so it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but that and like your four fifty KTM and stuff like that, my brain just can't keep up with it. <laughs> It'll get me there quicker than I want to be. So if I really want to push it, uh, and I see some of the people getting hurt now, and I think that's maybe where it's coming from. That it just goes quick and gets so much grip. I I agree. I think you see now at Grand Prix level, um, riders are getting their injuries are becoming more serious because of the speed. Yeah. When they crash, they get hurt. They crash pretty much now. Um, and because of that speed, the injuries are usually worse now. Um, but having said that, it, it, then opposite, it makes you appreciate the skill level of the top riders these days. Um, you know, when you see what they're doing on a bike, on a 450, um, you know, and you see the things they're actually doing to get around the circuit, it's it's unbelievable what they can do on a bike. Oh, yeah, yeah. It has changed so much from what I used to race that you know the bikes are so much improved now, but the rider has to be so much improved now with his fitness and his eating and his living style, and it all has to come together. For me now, at that level, at Grand Prix level, it's a full-time job, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's to be able to ride one of those to their potential. Mm-hmm. Okay, Q&As. Uh, first one. It's from uh, a, a, somebody you might have heard of, uh, up and coming called Stuart Edmonds. Yeah. Heard of him? Oh yeah, yeah. He, he could be he could be good from what I hear. I don't know. He's um, a bit old now, so he is. It's probably time he was married and settled down. No. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh dear. You're you're on dodging ground there, definitely. Uh, right, Stuart's question is, what was your most challenging year of racing and why? Oh. They were all challenge every year was a different challenge from the year before. There were, there was, 
Did, did it get harder as you worked your way up the, up the level to progress? Because obviously the better you got, the, the better riders you're dicing with and the, the margins of improvement were smaller. So did it, it get... It didn't, no, it didn't really. No, it, it didn't get harder because you're always learning. So you are. Mm-hmm. And you're always, you know, you're around those riders, Grand Prix riders, stuff like that. And you're, I would be always watching what they're doing and watching what they're eating and... I remember when I was with 84, went over to Joe Bay's time and we went training with him and he was training in a completely different way that I was training. I was like, oh, right, that's, you know, I learn, I learn from that. Mm-hmm. And I was always trying to learn why they were better, and how they were quicker and what they were doing. And I remember going out practicing with Thorpey sometimes and watching him and looking at the bike and, oh, I need to do that with my bike and just always learning. It, it wasn't until it got to the stage where, when at the end of their career that it was just getting hard work. I needed something to motivate me to go quick. And that's probably because I've been racing 20 odd years. Mm-hmm. So it was, but no, there was nothing, there was nothing that some years was different. Like one year was, I was riding for Wilkomoto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so was the English company. Wow. I know. I bet you wish you still had that. That'd be well. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but for th- two months, like we worked, 12, 14 hours a day trying to develop that thing and I practiced on it and stuff. And for me, that was sort of two months that I should have been on something good, ready to start the season on because I had to kind of remember what a chain, maybe Yamaha or something that I went to at that straight after that. So it was, but. For those who don't know, Wilkomoto was a, a, a British 500cc two stroke air cooled bike um, made. By um, some guys in Hereford, Hereford Brian Wilcox, and they made, the the biggest bother we had with the whole bike was they made everything for it. They made the engine, they made the forks, they made the front wheel, they made they made the front hub, and it was a cast aluminium hub, um, and then the chrome plated the disc on it. So chrome plate and disc just don't work. So they don't. <laughs> they made the engine that a real big intake on it. It was a very quick engine. They made the rear shock. It was a single shock air shock on it, um, which didn't work either because it always changed pressure and stuff on it and just made everything instead of concentrating, right, we'll make a frame and we'll put a Yamaha engine in it or something else so that we can concentrate on one thing trying to make it better. So we're just trying to trying to improve a whole bike ready for um, a season within two months and it was never going to happen. So it wasn't. <laughs> and then you had to, you had to, had to go and get another deal and get, I think it was Yamaha's I went to and get it sorted out. Now, lucky enough, you could just get straight on it. And when you're young at that sort of age, you just ride them. It doesn't matter if it's a garden gate, you'll still try and ride it to the best you can. <laughs> it's not until you get a bit of experience and you learn a bit and thinking, oh, I need to improve this. I need to handle that and change that. And you don't ride it 100%. Because you know I'm going to come in here and I'm going to improve that and it'll be better. So, you know? mm-hmm. so there was nothing really. Okay. There was nothing really in the years that was difficult to do. It was just you just you just had to make it happen. That's <laughs> all. If you want to make money, you had to make it happen, and you had to be at the front. This is it. Or try to get to the front. <laughs> uh, so this will probably lead us into our second uh, question then from Barry Johnston. Um, he has asked, what was your favorite bike to ride? So this could be from now until from the start of your career. What was your favorite? 
well, in their days, they're they're all you know at that time it would have been the likes of now. I've got this 450 Kawasaki mm-hmm. 2020 450 Kawasaki. You just push a button and it goes. Yeah. You do. I wouldn't be bothered kicking anymore now. <laughs> like, you know, if somebody gave me a kickstart bike now, I couldn't be bothered right now. I'll just sit right this year because I'll just push a lazy man's bike. <laughs> um, in their day, you know, the 500 Kawasaki was a good bike to ride. I used to ride for Hillwood and Gould Yamaha on a 465 Yamaha. Mm-hmm. You know, please. And, Did you? Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that. Did you get to know those guys? You know, t- Tim Matthews is the the manager in Hereford, I think, Worcester, Worcester. And he used to run, Worcester, yeah. used to run the wee track there. Yeah. I rode, rode for, for him for a year. So, so wow. in their days, you know, the Michael was good in this day. You know, I, I would have known, probably my allegiance would be to Kawasaki. Mm-hmm. So it would, because that's where I've spent most of the time and made most of my career from. Yeah. There we go. Don't blame you. Um, <laughs> so, question three from Steve Spokes. This is probably something we haven't really touched on. Um, who was your rival during the MXGP years? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> All of them. You're always trying to be at the front, so you are. And it was, oh, it's just. There was no real well. They were all rivals because mm-hmm. you were all trying to beat them all. Mm-hmm. So I remember one time. I think it was in Italy. I don't know how he managed it, but at the time Brad Lackey was riding, mm-hmm. and he was riding the factory Suzuki's. It was, and for some reason we were about eleventh, tenth, eleventh place, coming up towards the. You know, we must have fallen off or something happened, and we were racing. Like, you know, like the last three or four laps were in that sort of place. And him, we were racing as hard as we could, and I beat him in for I think, the last point. Mm-hmm. And he came over the line. He says, "Lawrence, I'm sure we are the quickest riders in the track there." So we were <laughs> for that. Like and I was thinking, "Let me." And I can remember the time he was world champion or something. At the time, he says, "Let me." I'm racing. And at the time, I didn't know who it was behind me. Yeah. So it didn't. I was just racing on. I could see a yellow bike. I could be packing back in any of those boys. I'm going to race on here. He's not going to get me. So we're going over the line. Oh, thank goodness for that. He says. I think we were some of the quickest riders in the track there, tracing for that last point. So, flip me, that's the world champion. <laughs> Saying that to me. So, so who, who did you try and sort of uh, emulate or learn from or copy? Who was that? Was it Joe Bay or was it Thorpe? No, it or? would have been De Costa. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. A okay. nice, smooth rider, quick and steady. Um, he would have been sort of the one I would have been looked up to for that style. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get Carl Quist for the, the effort that he puts in and never say die, never give up. Mm-hmm. And there was just you know, different writers I would look at, right? What's your good point? Right? I need to be doing that. Or what's your weak point? All right, I can get you there. You know, I can know have you in that one sort of stuff. It was, I, I tried to look at writers and what they were doing mm-hmm. and learn from them, just good points and bad points. What about the British riders in the say in the British Championships and that sort of thing? Who, who did you have rivalries there? There was always just whoever was there. You know, Jeremy Watley and Thorpe and they would always had the you had, you had the good days and bad days. Who you were racing with? It just depended who you were racing with. You know, Andy Nichols sometimes had a real good ride. He was good down the south, around Reading and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. from where he came from. Um, 
So for me, there was no rivalries really. You just because it was it was a pretty much a GP lineup the British Championships then, wasn't it? Because there was a lot of British Grand Prix riders in. Yes, yes. At that time, it was you know if you if you were top three or four in the British Championship, you'd have been top six eight in the World Championship. You know the, the level was that good then. So it was so it, it was just a carry on that for me that's where you needed to be racing to keep your speed up for the go to the Grand Prix again. So is there any sort of um, tips that you would sort of pass down to people that you help out at the moment or any bits and bobs like that? Um, well, I do try regularly, but I practice some of the try and help the riders there as I go along. Mm-hmm. Alexis Stewart saying, you know, <clears throat> go out and get a bike that you're comfortable with and you have confidence in, mm-hmm. and then you know you can ride it. Mm-hmm. Um, younger ones as well, I would go and help them because... A lot of them now, this could be a bit controversial, like, <laughs> but I, I see a lot of the writers now, younger writers, are taking on coaches and those sort of people. Mm-hmm. And I would say to those people, you know, the younger writers, any good writers I have seen, any world champions or real good writers, I class real good writers, mm-hmm. I have seen make it in their own. So they do. Yeah. Now I say to them, you know, go to your coaches. Yeah. Go to like we have some over here. We have probably four or five over here. I said, go to each one of those once or twice, and pick out of them what you think's right and what suits you, because that coach is going to try and make you ride like he rides mm-hmm. or he how he thinks you should ride. And there is no right and wrong way to ride a motorbike. Everybody's got their own style. So, so go to them and pick out what do you think's right mm-hmm. for them and make that work for you. And I can see some of the younger writers now, you know, that they're coached into that. The coach tells them you do this, you sit here, you stand up, you do your left, right and center or something like that. Um, and then whenever something happens, they don't know what to do or they can't think. Mm-hmm. So they can't because there's nobody to tell them what to do. Yeah. You know, uh, from what I've looking at, I've looking all the time, you know, for Ken Roxon, I remember going away well, seeing him in the eighty five, stuff like that, and it was just his dad and he was going around, you know, telling him, What would you do there? You know, two guys during one of the races, I remember standing to and they were telling they're German so and coming in a corner and one of them hit the other one and he said, What would you do there? And he was getting Ken to think. He wasn't telling Ken what to do. Mm-hmm. He was getting can to think what would I do there yeah you know and it's just turning the whole psychology thing right off you've got to think for yourself because you're not making your own mm-hmm. you've got to make a decisions when you're out there on your own yeah definitely so you we mentioned um earlier on you you talked about electric bikes and things like that so so two questions in one um what's your take on the current motocross scene and where do you see it going in the future that's a big question. That is a big one. That's for <laughs> Mr. Longo. <laughs> so it is. Um, I don't know where it's going to go. Motocross and Leverby Formula One or MotoGP. So not because, just because of nature of it. Mm-hmm. With the mud and the rain and everything changes. For me, it's better because it's not the same. Everything changes. I was doing a bit of track down there during the week. And it was good, but 
motocross would be, I know if I went back to, if I run a track Desert Martin today and I went back to tomorrow, it would be different. So it would, and that's one of the excitements about motocross because you have to adapt all the time to it. They're trying, I know they're trying to do the hard stand and paddock, which is good for the spectators and the people, but I don't think it'll ever get to the level of MotoGP or Formula One and again. So I can't. And the electric, what about electric yeah. bikes? Do you see it, see that being the future? I don't know if I don't know if electric bikes will be or not. I don't. They're good fun to ride. They're completely different again. So they are a different sport altogether. Um, but I don't think it'll take over unless the government and the world health or something that says that we can't use petrol anymore. Mm-hmm. They'll have to go like, but I can't see it taking over from petrol powered bikes. I can't. I, I think I think it might be different now. I think they might, you know, like the Formula One have that E formula, yeah, yeah, electric formula. It might be something like that because it's, it's a whole different minefield you got to get into, and it's not for the average person to be doing if they're going to go into racing bikes because you you can't be working with a lot of high voltages there. So you can, mm. and then you need generators so you... to charge them and keep batteries up and all that sort of stuff, and it's it's just different. But... You've you've raced in the old the old days, and you're involved with the modern scene. Um, are you glad you raced when you did, or would you rather be riding these days? Which was which was better? Was it the golden age, or are we just looking through rose coloured spectacles? Which which would you have? I well, I was lucky to do it. I was lucky to come from right from the real for me. The real good times is when you could make money out of it, mm-hmm. so you could and you could earn a living out of it. And some people made very good money out of it. Um, right through that till now, where I don't know if the best yes, the best riders are riding the motorbikes, the world champion stuff are riding the motorbikes, but I don't know if those 30 riders are the best 30 riders in the world. I don't think they are. Whereas whenever I was doing it, you had to qualify. So there was the best riders mm-hmm. in the world in that race. Um, but I, I would I enjoyed it more because it was just like a big traveling circus. <laughs> and you get you get you got to see the world. Well, you did and you didn't. <laughs> you did. You got to see the world. I remember going mum and dad coming away to one of the early times we were going to the French International Grand Prix or something like that, and they were in holidays. And my mum wanted to go down, well, I had to go down through Paris, and she wanted to go see Versailles and all that sort of stuff. And I said, All right, we'll go there then. Right, we're here 10 minutes, can we go now? <laughs> and they were looking around, No, no, we're here. And flipped me, I was there the whole day in the end, and she loved it. But for me, it was just, I want to get to the next race. So they, and I missed seeing all around the countryside. And now, now I've got the stage now where they go to the motocross the nations every year, whether team manager or whoever it is. Like, and then we spend two or three days either before or afterwards going and seeing the country. Mm. So they, you know, now I now have time. Now, now I would appreciate it more. So they, maybe that's getting getting old. Just you could, you could. So what what would you have done differently now with with hindsight when you were starting off your GP career? Now what would you have done differently? Anything? I I know I didn't, I, and I know I didn't fulfill my potential that I could have done. So I could have. I know I could have been better. 
if I had of trained things different and done a few things, been a bit more serious at it. But I don't think it would have changed. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to go out partying on a Saturday night and stuff like that. So that I had some real good times. Whereas the good real good writers would have been in bed. <laughs> you know, and really focused. Now, I didn't do a lot. Sometimes we did it like, and you know, and their main goal was to be world champion and that's all whereas my main goal would have been world champion but have a good time trying to get there yeah so it was so i wouldn't have changed anything you know we had so many stories and things happened over the years and and they get right with some people like and especially over at farley castle or something like that you were talking to some of the people and says do you remember such a thing oh i remember that now yes and we were wrecked all the great hire car and all sorts of stuff I remember that nice with they and, he, and the whole series of events just leading up to it. So there was and after it all. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't have changed. No, I I was I'm happy with whatever. Modern people times are different because they fly in a night and they sort of have to fly a night to get their their training right because it was hard for us to train properly and to eat properly because mm-hmm. we were on the road all the time. You would drive down right. Well, Pull into a cafe. I remember going to Kurt Nickel was on the team at the time, and he loved McDonald's. So we called into McDonald's and had a McDonald's Big Mac eating competition to see who could eat the most Big Macs. <laughs> and at one sitting, I like, he even won it. So he did. <laughs> but there was stuff like that we got on all the time, you know. That, whereas now, for the modern bikes, that you couldn't get away with that sort of stuff. It's just dangerous. You do realise that. Jeffrey Hurling's treat to himself at the end of a long, hard GP season is to have a Big Mac. That, that's his treat to himself. That's what he looked forward to. Yeah. <laughs> and, Just to have one. Yeah. And at the times, at, the, at those times we were doing them, you couldn't get them. You see, they, they didn't have Big Mac. There wasn't McDonald's here then. But you could get them on the German motorway, certain German motorway uh, service areas that were near a U.S. Air Force base. There was only about two or three in Germany you could get. <laughs> I remember we were passing by. Went, right, we'll call in here. Kurt likes these stuff here. We're going to have a competition one day so you could eat the most of them. <laughs> but nowadays, you know, it's just different times, different. You're not going to, you know, that's why I can't remember a lot of stuff because you're not going to go back to that era. Mm-hmm. So you're not. you got to move for the forward. So just, if you made a mistake, you learn from them mm-hmm. and move forward. From don't, them. Don't... You do. Don't, don't forget, these will be the good old days in the future. Oh, the young ones now. Yeah, like the Jeffrey Hernings and all, they were good times because they'll be changing again in 10 years. Yep. Yeah, these will be the yep. good old days. They will, yeah. They will. There we go. So I think that will probably round up episode 15 then, Roger. Yeah, it's been fascinating. It Absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, you've you've you said at the start you were worried that you could, didn't like talking about yourself, or you haven't done a bad job. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> Lawrence. Thank you so much for joining us. I know uh, it's probably well saying there's nothing to do at the moment. I'm I'm glad we've managed to get you on the podcast and and giving you an hour out of your day. No problem. Thank you very much too. It's the first time we've ever done this, so that that's not too bad actually. Oh, maybe we'll uh, we'll trade you in for Roger then and get you on as a co-host. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! I'm, I bet I'm cheaper than he is. <laughs> I bet they're not. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So, thank you so much for tuning in to episode 15 of the Live Motocross podcast. 
Um, join me, Sophie McGinn, and potentially Roger Roran again next week. We'll be chatting to um, another very special guest. Thank you, Sophie. And thank you, Roger, too. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And uh, um, hopefully look forward to next week. No matter how hard we